Welcome to the Academy Podcast, a podcast dedicated to sharing rich content for the purpose of spiritual growth. I'm your host, Shalom Agdarab. The Academy creates transformative space for people to connect with God, self, others, and creation for the sake of the world. To learn more about the Academy, visit academy.upperroom.org. The wisdom guide we hear from today is Reverend Dr. Alexia Salvatierra who is the Academic Dean of Centro Latino and the Associate Professor of Integral Mission and Global Transformation at Fuller Theological Seminary. She has over 40 years of ministry experience, including as a missionary in the Philippines, in Spanish-speaking and English-speaking congregations, as a legislative advocate, as a founder and director of multiple nonprofit organizations, and as an international speaker, trainer, and consultant. She was the co-founder of several national initiatives in the arena of engaging the church in the immigration crisis. She is the co-author of Faith-Rooted Organizing, Mobilizing the Church in Service to the World, and, most recently, Buried Seeds, Learning from the Vibrant Resiliency of Marginalized Christian Communities. I recall the beginning of my integration as an organizer and a pastor. I, of course, had dabbled in activism throughout my 20s, but it left me feeling wanting. And in the fall of 2016, feeling despair over our political landscape, but also feeling an invitation, a tug to something new in the texture of my ministry, I heard the voice of Miss Ruby Sales in an On Being podcast ask, where does it hurt? Because hurt and pain can often move us more quickly than wishes and dreams, this question is often asked. But the question that precedes, where does it hurt, is, who do you love? As followers of the way, we start with love. We're created out of love. We're asked to extend love to stranger and enemy. Activism can often be transactional and can burn us up on the way to justice. But rooting our revolution in love? That's the way I choose to go. In my own formation, Alexia's book, Faith-Rooted Organizing, gave me a framework and language for things I long desired. I wanted capacity and imagination in the way I ministered. I wanted to build with community inside and outside the church and not for the purpose of getting folks inside. I wanted people of faith to feel their love for neighbor with their own sense of power, lest it be sentimental and anemic, to quote the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And people we are called to love are the stranger, the immigrant, refugees from war after escalated conflict after war. But when it is the most divisive topic in legislatures, when comprehensive immigration reform seems impossible and floating barriers are anchored into the Rio Grande, how can we possibly hope? We need a strong wisdom guide for this one, and we have her. So listen on, dear one, and as you listen, breathe deeply and expand gently. And may our fears flow to the surface so that they can be seen in the light of spirits all surrounding grace. What does it mean to hope? 
And I think that in our society, we often confuse hope and optimism. That optimism is when you look at the future and you weigh the odds and it's looking good. Hope is when regardless of the odds, you believe that something good is coming. Hope, in spite of all the odds, comes from trusting the promise. That Jesus says, I am with you always until the end of time. And if the Lord who created and sustained the universe is with us, then something good is coming. Hope is particularly important for immigrants because the odds for immigrants are almost never good. So I want to, I know that you've been learning all week about this issue, but I just want to ground us in a few of the areas in which the odds are not good for immigrants. And I want to ground those areas in a story, in a true story. So you, when you um, saw the video with Karen Gonzalez, she talked about how if Ruth was a refugee today, that she would not be allowed to enter not only the US, but almost any country in the world because the international definition of refugee, not in Latin America, it's a little more open in Latin America, but almost everywhere in the world, the international definition of refugee is someone who is fleeing because they are particularly and individually persecuted. And they have to be able to prove that. Persecuted as a result of their race, their religion, a variety of different factors. Someone who, like Ruth, would be running away from poverty, from hunger, from violence that is not particular to them, and they couldn't prove is particular to them, is not considered a refugee, is not considered someone who is suffering from forced migration, even though all of us would say automatically and naturally from the heart, what? <laughs> what? Um, Ruth is a refugee. When Jesus ran away, of course, Jesus was being particularly persecuted. That is true when he ran away to Egypt, but Ruth was not. So, you know, we would welcome Ruth, but that's, but that's not, she would not be considered a refugee. Um, and that's particularly acute right now because of the climate issue. That the climate crisis is going to produce more and more people that are running away from their homes because they cannot survive there but who would not be considered under most international standards, refugees. And we have seen all of this play out recently in the little game around Venezuelans, <laughs> that Venezuelans are running from a terrible crisis of violence and poverty. And um, our administration right now in the United States, a democratic administration was using Title 42 which is uh, a public health policy that was created to prevent people from entering who had the pandemic um, and now is really unnecessary, that the Title 42 was being used to not allow Venezuelans to apply for asylum. <laughs> so, you know, it's not even just that Venezuelans would have to prove that they were individually persecuted. Beyond that, they wouldn't even be allowed to prove that because a public health policy was being used to keep them in Mexico. And then Mexico was planning to send them after a two week period back to Venezuela. Um, 
if you are able to apply for asylum, that doesn't mean that you will have the legal support that you need in order to prove that you were individually persecuted. That's not always simple to prove, particularly when you're running for your life. But we provide free legal support in the United States for people who are accused of a crime, but not people who are applying for asylum. So you don't have free lawyers. You just have whatever nonprofit lawyers may be available, and you may have to wait a very long time for one of them to be available, and you may get deported in the meantime. And of course, currently, um, people who are brought here to the United States as young children and have spent all of their lives here and feel very much part of this country, but don't have legal status, are actually now um, newly at risk of deportation. They've been in a, in a part of a game for many years where their status has been unsure and uh, going back and forth between being allowed to be in this country and, and not being sure whether they can stay in this country. And they um, are now at risk again. Now, I want to bring that home. Um, a number of years ago, we were running a legal clinic in the organization that I worked in in partnership with a number of other organizations. And our job was to get volunteers from churches to take care of the children while their parents, who had just arrived in the country and were fleeing the crisis in Central America. They were fleeing a human rights crisis in Central America. They had just arrived. They were talking to the lawyers and we were taking care of the kids. But we were missing a volunteer that day. And so I stepped in and I was sitting with a nine-year-old who had arrived the day before. And this is not her picture, but this is what she looked like, the picture that you see here. So you can imagine her in your mind. And you know how when children are coloring or they're in the backseat of the car, that's often when they pour their hearts out to you, right? Not when you're sitting across from each other, but you know, when, so she was doing that. She was coloring and she was looking down and then she just started pouring her heart out to me. And I will share in English, although she spoke in Spanish. She said to me, pastor, they were hitting my brother, my older brother. They were hitting him hard, Pastor, and there was blood coming from his nose, and there was blood coming from his mouth, and there was just blood everywhere. And my mother took my hand and she said, run, run, run. And so we ran. And we ran for days. We walked and we walked such a long way, Pastor. And we slept on the ground and it was cold and I was hungry. And I was scared and I talked to God. And then she said, we came. And then her voice went down to whisper and she said, and thanks God, pastor, thanks God. Now we're safe. And all I could think is that, no, you're not. You haven't proved the case that you're a refugee. And you may not be able to prove it. Now, I share that story not only so that we share her pain, but also so that we share her hope. Because that's what I want you to hear. I didn't have a lot of hope for her, but she had hope. And again, her hope was not based in the odds being good. Her hope was based in the one who promises us that he will be with us always, even to the end of the age. You know, the body of Christ has always been one of my favorite scriptures. 
But a few years ago, I, I, my understanding of the body of the Christ of Christ went to another level because I was in a terrible bike accident and I broke every bone in my left wrist. And when I did that, I really understood this line from 1 Corinthians 12. If one part of the body suffers, all the parts suffer with it. You know, my right wrist was fine, <laughs> but that was irrelevant. <laughs> the pain in my left wrist affected everything in my body. And then, you know, the HMO that I was part of wasn't sure because of my age that they were going to do the complicated operation that was necessary to rebuild my wrist. And I said, well, what happens if you don't do that? And they said, well, you'll be in pain all your life, but you can take pain pills. And I said, what? <laughs> what? If I, take, if I live on pain pills, I won't be able to fully live. I won't be able to live the mission that God has given me in the world. And then it hit me that the body of Christ lives on pain pills. That we don't feel the pain in our members. We don't feel that that suffering of that little girl is our suffering. When we bear one another's burdens, all of our burdens are lightened. And when we don't, our burdens stay heavy. But when we do bear one another's burdens, not only do we feel the pain of that little girl, but we also feel her hope. If one part is honored, all parts rejoice with it. And so that's my call to you today, my familia, is that you would let yourself feel the pain in our body, but also the hope that dwells there. In the heart of that little girl, in the heart of the faith of many immigrants. You see, that faith, that hope, doesn't erase pain. It doesn't come when the pain is over. It's not like we feel the pain and then we feel the hope and then we're fine. That's not the story for most immigrants. And honestly, it's not the story for most of us, period, right? It's not when we, when we allow that hope to come into us. What happens is that the pain that we feel is shifts and it becomes the pain of labor. Let's read the scripture together from Romans. I think it's helpful to actually each of us to read it in our own space. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is no hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, through perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Renee August, Reverend Renee August, is a leader. She is an Episcopal priest. She's a leader in South Africa. 
And she says that the difference between a sprint and a marathon is how you breathe. And for any of us who have given birth, little show of hands, how many people here have given birth? A few of us, a number of us, right? You know that the way you breathe really matters, right? You know, or maybe you haven't given birth, but you've been with someone giving birth, right? And you can see that the way you breathe really matters. And there is, as we know biblically, this very close relationship between breath and spirit and prayer. So there is a call if we really want our pain to shift over and become labor pain, that there is a call to breathe. There is a call to pray unceasingly, to pray like we breathe, to take in the promise of God and the presence of God. And um, then my friend, um, Pablo Alvarado, who runs the National Day Laborers Association, he's the founder of the National Day Laborers Association, when he heard Rene August speak, he said to me, you know, it's not enough when you're giving birth to breathe. He said, you have to breathe and then you have to push. And so I want to call you my familia. First of all, I want to call you into breathing as deeply as you can. And then I want to call you into pushing. <laughs> that there are moments when you have to push and that is part of the process of labor. And so we, we're going to reflect a little bit on breathing and pushing together because I think we have a little time to do that um, because we have a little time. I was given a little extra time. So I want to say something about how, um, how pain is understood in Latin America, um, how suffering is understood in Latin America in a way that I think is helpful as we reflect on times of breathing and times of pushing. So there is a term, theological term, that is often used in Latin America. It's called dolorismo. And it's usually used negatively. That dolorismo means no, seeing suffering as noble. That we don't do anything about suffering. We're passive before suffering because we see suffering as ennobling us right? Um, I actually don't have a negative view of dolorismo. Um, my grandmother and, you know, practiced dolorismo because often she had no option for change. She had no objective option for change. She could not stop the external cause of her suffering any more than many migrants can, but she could uh, not allow that suffering to destroy her. She could take it to God in a way that kept her whole and cleansed her and gave her strength in the middle of the things that she could not change. It's the first line of the serenity prayer, right? God, give us the capacity. Give us peace in the face of the things that we cannot change. I think that dolorismo becomes negative if we forget the little word that needs to be part of that sentence, which is change yet. Dolorismo is negative when we think things can never change. Dolorismo is positive when we are aware that it's not yet the time to push, that things cannot change yet. But just like when you're giving birth, you have to sense 
when is the moment, when is the time, when is the way that is available to you to change the things you can? And then you need the courage, like the serenity prayer says, to change the things you can. And the word that is being used now more and more in Latin America comes out of liberation theology for that is orthopathos, which is that we turn our suffering into fuel for change. And sometimes we do that through knowing that our suffering is common, that we bear our burdens together and we are part of the whole body and we have the strength of the whole body behind us. So sometimes our suffering reminds us of that, of our common connection. It reminds us of our connection with the cross, which leads to the resurrection. So it reminds us, it helps us not to be able to be satisfied with our own lives if other people are in pain. So orthopathos is turning suffering into liberation. So we have to understand when to breathe and when to push. Often we think that we can only come together around our common pain, that pain will unite us. Um, traditional community organizing brings people together around common pain and then um, moves that pain into anger because anger can be a force for change. But there is another way to come together that is very connected to understanding our pain as labor and living our pain as labor. And that's when we unite around a common dream. So I actually have two stories that I wanna share with you. And the first story is from the peace process in uh, Guatemala and El Salvador in the early nineties. So um, I had a, a real um, privilege. I had an amazing opportunity. I was very young then. Um, to sit at the table to observe the peace process. And that was not um, the, the formal table of the United Nations. At the United Nations formal table, it was stuck. Now, there had been a war going on in Guatemala at that point for around 30 years. There had been a war going on, a civil war going on in El Salvador for around 16 years. And uh, the peace processes were just stuck. And one of the reasons why they were stuck was that when you, these are small countries, and when you've had a war going on for that long in a little country, that the people who are in leadership on both sides of the war are often related to each other. And so they are um, indirectly or indirectly responsible for the deaths of each other's families. So the desire for vengeance is very deep, um, almost as deep as the desire, or maybe as deep as the desire for peace. So um, the president of Costa Rica, Oscar Arias at the time, decided to do an alternative peace process behind the scenes. And I was working for an international peace organization related to the Lutheran church, and they raised the funds for this process. So we got to have somebody to sit at the table as an observer. And I was not the, the leader of the organization. <laughs> I was very young. I was just the only person who spoke fluent Spanish. So. So anyhow, I got to watch. They all thought I was somebody's daughter. Um, but it was really life-changing because um, the first thing that Dr. Arias did was he invited the leaders of every sector of society, not just the revolutionaries and the army leaders, but the leaders of every sector of society. So the top business leaders, the top union leaders, the top leaders of civil society, mothers of the disappeared, the top um, politicians, everybody. And they were all in one room together. And you can imagine what it felt like in that room. I mean, it was awful because the people hated each other so deeply. Um, 
And then Dr. Arias started out the process by inviting people to handing little index cards to everybody and crayons and inviting them to write their dream for their country in 20 years. They were to write their dream, describe it. And then they would go up and put their dream on the wall and tell everybody their dream. So do you think their dreams were similar? They were. They all wanted peace. They all wanted prosperity. They all wanted their young people to have opportunities. Lots of dreams in common. And as they did that, something happened in the room, which is that the potential for the future became more powerful than the pain of the past. I'm going to say that again. The potential for the future became more powerful than the pain of the past. And then people began to work together and they came up with agreements that were reflected in the formal peace process three weeks later when they actually um, began to sign the formal, the formal peace process started moving again and they signed the peace pacts. So that was an extremely powerful experience of the power of a common dream. That this is part of how the labor pains work, right? Is they, they bring us towards the power of a common dream if we allow them to. Um, so then many years later in 2006 in Los Angeles, we had a march, we had a million people march for immigration reform, but there were a lot of tensions at that time between the African-American community and the Hispanic immigrant community. And um, there was a meeting that some of the leaders of the African-American community, traditional leaders a few weeks later called a meeting of African-American leaders where they invited the Minutemen from the border, the anti-immigrant forces. And some of the leaders of the organization that I directed were at that meeting and they were like, no, we are, we are not, we are not doing this. You know, we need to create peace here between the African-American community and the immigrant community. So we decided that we would do Oscar Arias's exercise. And so we got a whole bunch of faith leaders, African-American faith leaders, Hispanic immigrant faith leaders in a room. And we, um, we did the dream exercise <laughs> and we put our dreams on the board. And of course they were similar. It was South Los Angeles. We wanted the same things for our, our community. And even though they were in two languages, they were similar dreams and it didn't work. <laughs> it sort of worked. There was some movement. And so we took a break and those of us who were leading were like, what's going on? What's going on? Why isn't it working? And then we realized that for most uh, oppressed people that we don't believe our dreams can come true. So it was really great that we had the same dreams, but it didn't matter. The pie was still too small. So then we asked everybody, what are God's dreams for South LA? Like find scriptures that tell us whether those are God's dreams, because if they're God's dreams, then they can come true. And so as people began to find scriptures that supported their dreams, there was a laughter that began to build in the room. And I think of it as the laughter of Sarah when she was too old to have a baby, well, when the angels told her that she would, and she laughed. You laugh when it's too good to be true, but it's true. And after that, everything moved, and people came to common agreements that are still happening many, many years later. Some of those relationships are still going on. But it's all laying invisible bricks in the city of God. Every, every victory is an is eternal has eternal power is an invisible brick in the city of god coming 
Um, so never feel like it's in vain just because we lose as much as we win. We live on this side of the cross. We have to learn how to bear pain. We have to learn how to bear it in a way that ennobles us. We have to learn to breathe through it. Um, and, and then to wholeheartedly give ourselves to the pushing when it can work and celebrate the victories and know that we are achieving something eternal. But it feels like the foretaste. It doesn't feel like we're, you know, I, one of the reasons why sometimes young people say, well, nothing has changed. It's because they have such hunger for everything to change. And everything will change. That's the promise, but not now. So we are part of these laying invisible bricks in the, in the city of God. Um, and, you know, actually, when you are immersed in it, in my experience, it's enough. There's, there's a, um, sometimes people say that to me. They say, well, how are you so joyful in the midst of what you do? And there's a, a part of the Passover liturgy on the, our Jewish brothers and sisters. They have this, this liturgy that celebrates the exodus from Egypt. And there's a song that they sing in the middle. And the, the Hebrew word is dayenu. And the song goes through all of the different miracles from the beginning. And in each one, Dayeno means it would have been more than enough. So, you know, if you had just taken us out of Egypt and we would have died in the desert, it still would have been more than enough just to be free. You know, if you had given us the law, that would have been more than enough, right? Dayeno, Dayeno, Dayeno. And so I think that Dayeno is a practice that recognizes that a foretaste of the feast to come if you're really in it all the way, if you've really done all that you can, that it, it becomes enough, more than enough, Dayeno. And But there is, an, there is a going back and forth, just like there is when you're giving birth between laments, where you just cry out in anger and pain, and you need to be honest about that. You know, there is a lament phase, and then there's a Dayeno phase. It's enough to be part of the work. It's enough to be part of the new life coming. It's more than enough. What is your dream for immigrants and refugees? And then let's gonna make, expand that a little bit. What is your dream for all of us, inclusive of immigrants and refugees? Because it's we're one body. We're one body. And until we really see that and feel that, you know, we're not as Delarithba saying we have to feel that that we are one body. So what is your dream for all of us, inclusive of immigrants and refugees? And then lastly, what is God's dream? What is the scripture that gives you hope? Because it's a promise, no matter what the odds are. Listening to Alexia's stories, we bear witness to the stories of people most impacted by draconian policies and often doubly and triply feeling the burden of racism and poverty as well. To the Holy One we cry out, give us capacity, give us imagination, give us breath. Lovingly remind us that we are in the already and the not yet. I want to be in solidarity with orthopathos, 
with suffering that does not glory in suffering, but that is turned into fuel for change. Beloved, the divine does care about us. We don't need to compare sufferings because God cares for all of us and, and has a bigger dream of shalom, of wholeness, of peace with justice for each and every one, for the earth. What I do know is that we need to stick together for the long haul while staying true to that dream as we work with God to bring it to fruition. Share this podcast with others. May it be a nudge, a guide, an honoring of intuitions you've long held and a means for justice in your lives and in the lives of all. To hear more from faculty and wisdom guides like Alexia, join us at the next online or in-person Academy retreat. For more information, visit academy.upperroom.org.